Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Catherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Kelly Grillo join us today to talk about her thoughts on assistive technology. Now, the world of assistive technology is huge, and it is a huge barrier remover for individuals uh, with various neurodiversities. And as technology advances, like it, it's like the possibilities are limitless. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. Dr. Kelly Grillo is a, a director of special education. Correct. And I'll let you give the audience a little bit more information about who you are and what you do uh, before we go into more detail about assistive technology. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that introduction, Dr. Garforth. So um, we've had the pleasure of having a couple of prior conversations, one about my journey with dyslexia. So I am a person um, living with dyslexia really at the severe and profound level. Um, and so assistive technology is dear and near to my heart, allowing me to do the things that I love to do in academia and reading and writing. Um, the other part of this journey is really my advocacy for others just like us and um, supporting families, parents, um, persons with disabilities and all types of disabilities. Of course, I'm a special education director, which makes the role even more impactful, I believe, um, but really helping folks to change their culture and think about assistive technology in a different way, not just because it's a law or we have a series and sets of laws in different um, lanes, so to speak. Um, obviously, we have accessibility laws for internet technologies and for, you know, audio and movie production and things like that, but we have all different sets of laws within our K-12 schoolhouses and in higher ed. And so we're starting to see these things, especially here in America, because um, I know your audience is really broad with the Americans with Disabilities Act. We recertify those laws, so they should be done, you know, every four to seven years, depending on who you are. <laughs> and then we have a lame duck session, right? Um, but so these laws are designed so that we can have equitable access. And so when I talk about this from my lens, um, I want folks to know that it is through that reading and writing lens um, and that I understand that assistive technology is very broad. The field is really wide. Um, I am going back to school in January and I'm going to be studying deaf education. So I'll be learning more about the access technologies for persons with hearing impairments. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, but we have a wide field when we consider technology and assistive technologies, technologies that some people may use every day just in latency actually can be assistive technologies for persons that need them. And so the way in which we look at those technologies really have to be from a cultural standpoint, I believe, um, and really allow people to be who they are and allow them to use the tools that they you know, see fit and have learned to fluency and automaticity um, to best be who they need to be. 
And so that's a really hard thing, I think, for people to plan around. Um, you and I come from the IEP world, you know, when you're planning an individualized education plan for any of our students, um, really thinking in terms of what do they need and having their voice a part of that conversation is super important. What I find mostly is we throw a device at someone and we say we gave them assistive technology. And that's really not the goal of any of these laws, really. It's to reduce barriers that others that are not neurodivergent or um, physically impaired, to reduce those barriers so that they don't have to work three and four and five and six times harder than anyone else without the disabilities. And so when we say equitable, we mean in time. So if you're going to give an assignment in a class, just because you have a device and a student can do two and three and four steps more than their non-disabled peers, it is now not equitable because you're requiring them to have a cognitive load that is not appropriate. Um, if you're expecting me as the neurodivergent to do those things, you're now putting a burden on me instead of taking it away. And a lot of folks don't think about that. They think, oh, well, we provided it. We allowed the screen reader. We allowed this or we allowed that. And really, the whole part of access wasn't fully embraced and the culture wasn't embraced so that we think ahead and say, what is the meaning of this lesson and how can it be best accessed? And maybe the person with disabilities have, have access to readings or what you're doing in class early, you know, maybe the day before so that they could process at the speed and rate that they need to access that print. Um, it's not cheating. <laughs> you know, that's the biggest thing. I think people in the assistive technology world have to constantly combat this idea that we are not cheating. We're literally leveling the playing field. And so, um, and is it giving them more work if you're giving them it early to review? Well, so some people will debate that, but again, listening to the learner. So, you know, I'm going back oh, yeah. to school and I want all of those readings early so I can make sure I have them in an accessible form. That shouldn't be my burden, but I know as an adult learner, teachers are going to have things on the syllabus that have, you know, maybe barriers. So I want to pull up every single reading before class and talk to that professor and say, what text do you use? What ancillary material? What extra things? What activities? And I want to pull all of your resources before I even step into your class the first day and make sure that I have my anthology of tools ready because I might need three or four different devices to access those those articles or the books or however we're designing. Some, some professors will design their own textbook with a, a menagerie of articles from many different places. And so some of those articles, depending on where I'm getting it, if it's on JSET or this or Web of Science, it may not be accessible in the format that I need it. Um, and so I might have to transfer that file and put that file on a Kindle or, you know, send it to a whisper link or like there's all these steps. And so I do, I, I understand that in higher ed, the burden is on the learner, um, but in K-12, the burden is not. The burden should be on the course designers and teachers nowadays because we have an online learning platform in most K-12 spaces between Seesaw and Canvas and Blackboard and, you know, we Google Classroom, we have to be thinking, did I post the material in a fully accessible format so that any student, no matter how they choose to engage with it, that they can engage with it with one click. If my sighted folks are engaging with that material with one click with their eyes, 
then we should not have extra steps or clicks as a barrier for our students that need it in a different format. There are projects across the United States here. Um, I'm not certain about you know, our friends in Canada, if you have um, accessibility projects there, um, but we have here in Indiana, we have the patents project, which will support teachers free of charge, how to create accessible educational materials. Um, and it's all teachers. So if you're not aware and you don't know how, you can fill out a form and ask for you know, universally designing your, your courseware. And there's experts on every platform between Microsoft and Google. And it's hard to keep up with those things unless it's your job to keep up with those things. So for a classroom teacher to have that burden, I do understand it is a burden. But what we want to make sure is that we're re reaching out to the resources. So there's national projects, there's statewide projects, um, because the laws have changed that we have to have those things in time. Whether we're keeping up with them is a different you know, conversation, um, but there are resources in our states that are designed to do that. Um, there's also a project um, that is looked at, I think, by the world. Um, it's the CAST project, so um, C-A-S-T. Um, and so Lindsay Jones is now the director of CAST and they have multiple um, arms and tentacles, so to speak, and they help for folks to think about accessibility at large. Um, and so that project has, has been around a long time. Um, some of the folks leading that work, they're really amazing, dedicated individuals. Um, what I love about some of the projects that are um, really diverse and dynamic, it they're being led by people with disabilities. And so if you're not having folks that are also impaired that use these tools at the table and in the conversations, I say that we're missing a huge piece because again, it's that we threw a piece of technology at you that can have accessibility features. Whether anybody in the schoolhouse knows how to turn those on is another question. Um, back in, I'm showing my age, so I was in high school in 1993 still. Um, they threw a piece of technology at me called an Alpha Smart. Um, my dad is very savvy with technology, so he figured out how to use it and taught me at home how to use it but nobody in the schoolhouse knew how to use the alpha smart. And I had this little tiny screen and I could like read back and it would actually transcribe and tell me what it said, which was pretty amazing technology. Um, there's a gentleman, his name is Kurzweil. He's really brilliant. Um, and he really started the precipice, I would say, the momentum of changing print technology um, for people like me and people um, with blindness. Um, so I do really think we've advanced in the last 25 years. Um, so when we look at different technologies, we've got to think about what the end user's experience is. Um, I currently, you know, fast forwarding from the Alpha Smart, I currently use things like Immersive Reader. I use an app on my phone called Seeing IA. I love Read, Write, Think. Um, there's a lot of Google-based extensions. A lot of our schools are using Google Tools and Google Chrome. There are so many extensions. And so it would be really remiss just to throw a batch of tools at someone. What I recommend is that folks do what's considered a technology cohort. They find people technology savvy and maybe even students themselves. I helped a small charter school develop this and monthly we met. We talked about barriers to learning and we crowdsourced our own set of tools and we all used them collectively for a month and came back and talked about 
the user experience, whether you needed it or not, people made the dedication to trying to read with their ears or to use, um, I had a, a braille system, a refreshable braille system. I don't read braille myself, um, but we were trying to see if the braille system would work with different pieces of textbooks and things like that. Cause we had a young lady that needed braille and nobody really had a lot of experience with re refreshable braille. So there, again, there's projects in, in most of our states. Um, Learning Ally used to be called Readings for the Dyslexic and Blind. And so they got a name change, I think in like 2007 or eight, maybe if I'm accurate, I may be off. Um, <laughs> but considering some of our technologies like braille technology was I think created in 1829. <laughs> we've come a long way, baby. Right? I mean, we've, we've made a lot of technology advancements. Um, but what I love is there's a gentleman, his name is Michael Curran. Um, he was one of the first developers of a screen reader called NVDA or NVD Access um, many years ago. And he crowdsourced the technology um, developments, much like I was saying, crowdsource your own tech assistive teams, you know, at your school level, if you don't have an assistive technologist at hand. Because um, we, what we want to do is broaden everybody's view of technology and assistive technology. And so Michael Curran, if I'm cor correctly saying his name, he's like a hero to me, but um, he literally had open source coding that would take what essentially was a thumb drive. You could carry it around with you. And I did this at Rutgers University. And you could plug this thing into any computer and have a free screen reader. And it was really revolutionary because at the time, the best technology was JAWS. And it was $1,000 and it was a little clunky and hard to learn to use. And Michael Kieran, he happened to be blind and an engineer, and he got some of his smartest friends to kind of hang out with him and crowdsource better code, easier to use, and more versatile. So thinking about all of the different places we go, the minute my technology is not with me, you've now created a very not equitable. It's just not okay for me. Like I carry multiple devices. I carry a Kindle, an Apple phone. Uh, you know, we, we have lots of different things. I have things that can access Android apps. So I have multiple pieces of technology all the time and, you know, Bluetooth earbuds and backups to those things so that I can always be able to scan and read and be um, able to be competitive in my environments. Um, I just I want to stop you there for a sec. Because assistive technology is amazing and definitely helps reduce the ableism. But one thing I often see is a student will be provided with assistive technology at school. They may not necessarily get the instruction on how to use it, it's not made available to them at home, and intervention stops because... Uh -huh. They have the assistive technology. And that is a huge problem because the individual still deserves assistive, or sorry, intervention. And at least I've never heard of a school that once a student reaches grade 12, they get free access to that assistive technology for the rest of their life. Right, right. Now, so there is a big sense of 
there, there's a privilege component, of course. Um, a lot of the technologies, however, the price is coming way down. Um, and a lot of us have devices in our pockets that maybe in a schoolhouse are not permitted. So you're now making a burden. If, I, if I'm really fluent with the device in my pocket and under the schoolhouse roof, I only get the thing that you issue to me but you issue to, to me without services in terms of becoming fluent with that tool and without teaching others about why I might be using that tool because there's a little bit of that peer pressure too, right? I may not use the tool that you issue to me because you didn't teach it to me and you didn't tell the rest of the culture in our schoolhouse why this device might be in a room. Um, and so to really educate others is important along that journey as well. Um, the piece that you said about the, the two lanes, so it's not one or the other. It yeah. should be this streamline, you know, I mean, when we talk about things like Scarborough's ropes, it's woven. So yeah. like, it's not, you're gonna teach me to decode and read with my eyes, or you're gonna teach me to use technology. You really should be using all of those tools simultaneously so it's not one or the other and and the IEP should really garner that like to learn your assistive technology as a support or service is different than your instructional goals aligned to your standards so there's no standards in assistive technology teaching right it's the access point to make me have more access to curriculum so a lot of times schoolhouse they don't put assistive tools and persons and aids in every classroom. They'll primarily give you support in mathematics or like an ELA, like an English class, but I'm disabled all day long. So I may need a, a support all day long. So they kind of feel like the Holy Grail is giving you a device because that device can go with you all day long. Um, now, I, I kind of like that. I, I'm a person that's a proponent for those things, but not at the at the risk of losing intervention. Um, I'm pretty outspoken about my father revoking my IEP in high school because the IEP was also a gatekeeper to allowing me in advanced studies courses. Mm -hmm. So he revoked the tool, but I did Linda Mood Bell in the evening. He picked up a second job. By no means was he a wealthy man. Um, he got a second job at like a gas station to afford me to be able to do these Linda Mood Bell training programs in the evening. Um, so I do think if you know your rights and he got better educated later um, and they began to pay for those interventions because it should have been afforded to me all along. I had an IEP from like kindergarten. <laughs> so, I mean, I should have been a reader by the time I got to high school. It's just they did not do those things. But what they did do is they started collaborating a lot better. And what I saw was because I did have this weird device and I had tape recorders and I had special, I always had like, I don't know, my dad's a really big time geek about technology, eight tracks before anybody had an eight track and we had a, a car with technology in it, which most people when I was young didn't have that in like the late seventies. So long story short, him being very um, tech, no savvy, so, so to speak, bled into him really learning about things. And so, you know, when LiveScribe pens came out, I was the first to have a LiveScribe pen. When, you know, all of these things as they came out, um, my Kendall, I actually named it Curtis Bonk and I'll explain why in a second. But um, so um, my Kendall was like this huge dinosaur. I still have my original Kendall. 
And yeah. um, the Office of Special Education Programs um, was funding my PhD studies. And Dr. Lisa Deeker purchased that Kendall with grant funds for me so that I could put as many textbooks and things on there um, so that I can have them read to me so I can read them with my ears um, and mark them up. So the beauty about the Kendall's technology is we can crowdsource. A handful of us can all read this and we can mark and annotate together, but we can also pull in the world's annotations if we want. So there's different settings and you can highlight a word maybe if you don't know a certain words definition and you can see like its origins and it's like history. And so that part of the technology growing so fast is really helpful because if I know the the word is from Greek or Latin, it helps me to situate it better on how it's enunciated. And then of and course, spelled. yeah, and how it's spelled, right? Um, but I could also use a little microphone and hear it spoken to me. And typically, it's spoken in its right um, intonation. Um, not always, but but the technology has grown so much that hearing it allows you that orthographic mapping that you need, right? And you can kind of rehearse it because I'm a person that wants to know the words and I want to, like, if I saw the word modicum, and this is a true story, actually, I was reading it as a book study with professionals and I had never come across the word modicum and it said a modicum of light. And I leaned over to a lady and I said, tell me about this word. And she is an English teacher. So she did, but I marked it in my Kindle for later so that I can make sure that I revisit that word and I can think about that word and so I put it in personal word journal that I keep I'm really geeky like that um, and then I force myself to use the word modicum and so I, I know that it means like sliver or a little bit or whatever um, but so I think these technologies for somebody that is truly wanting to be competitive um, to have access to them. It's not cheating. You're working still two and three times harder than your non-disabled peer. Um, but it is allowing you more pathways. Um, I do a lot of reading about, there's something in, in processing called bimodal processing. And so there's a really interesting um, research paper about the brain and how we process both with our eyes and our ears. And it takes by sheer volume of brain energy, more energy to process dually than mm -hmm. processing one at a time. And so when we say kids are cheating, when they're using a bimodal processing device, like if we're using an immersive reader where we're watching the words like bouncing ball, that's actually harder. So I would like for our, our field to kind of grow and, and the culture to shift to say the student is using and self-selecting to use something that is actually more challenging. It is not cheating. Um, and they need more time to develop their fluency skills with those tools. Um, and if they're not using it, you know, a lot of times it's because the culture hasn't embraced using it. And it's not because they're choosing to not have an accommodation that they need on purpose. Um, I hear a lot of times, oh, well, we had it in the IP for a couple of years, but they've really rejected it. But it really wasn't embraced well, you know. I can give a perfect example. So I have a child with severe dyslexia. Uh, and recently diagnosed and everything and we were on it we're like yes finally we got the diagnosis so we can say you have to let her you or the child use assistive technology uh, and you know something like speechify in the classroom um but or listening to audiobooks when you're doing silent reading because we don't want the discrepancy in the child's in French immersion so it's really important for her, the ear reading to happen to keep the vocabulary development, right? 
but there was a kid in the class that would call out every time the assistive technology was brought out and say, that's not fair, that's not fair. So my child stopped using it because not wanting to be singled out every time this happened, especially when it's a new diagnosis, right? Well, and a peer, right? Because in exactly. young people, they all want to fit in. And so mm -hmm. the culture of the teacher setting the framework for you know, like picture something like assistive um, communication devices. If I know I have a student coming on to my class on my roster with assistive communication device, I would probably set up my whole class and share, like, we're going to have a new friend. This mm -hmm. friend is going to use a voice box. This voice box helps them express themselves just like your own, you know, mouth helps you to express you. Um, it's a part of their person. You don't touch their, their assistive technology because it's like you're violating their personal space. A lot of teachers haven't been taught about that idea of creating a classroom culture that mm -hmm. helps others to understand if someone's with hearing aids. I hear a lot of times students don't like to wear their hearing aids because they feel so different. And then families don't require them to. And I'm like, why aren't we just changing the culture of where we are instead of having the child change? And so it, it really is one of those things that it's a, a school responsibility, a teacher level responsibility. If the students in your class are diverse, we should be creating an environment for all kids to have their needs met. You know, we, we take cultural sensitivity courses, we take, you know, all these courses about making sure we're doing things in that lens of inclusion. But when we think of the diversity of students with disabilities and the fact that we want them in general education settings more, we do very little to support them and their needs, including assistive technology, to allow them true inclusion. Um, you know, I, I had a teacher tell me, well, I sit him all the way over by the window in the back because his device might talk. And I'm like, hold up. So this student is in an inclusion classroom and you have them isolated all the way in the far corner of your room and no, not even near peers instead of like trying to mitigate a device talking, say, guys, you might hear this once in a while and it's okay. Like, I, I mean, I was using a timer in a classroom the other day doing one minute oral reading probes mm -hmm. and the timer would go off before I'd hit the button. And I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, I'm over here using a one minute timer. If you hear it go off, just continue on. And I'm so sorry. You prime everyone in the environment to know that it's just normalcy. So if it's yeah. a part, go ahead. In today's society, there's so much, you know, noise happening that kids are used to. Yes. And it's not like the classroom has to be this sterile box where they don't have, you know, audio distractions, right? They're used to hearing cell phones ring and ping and, you know, yeah. various things talk just because that's how things are today. And I guarantee it's not the first time they've heard it or the last time. And Absolutely. it's unique to this situation. It's something that they need. Yes, we want to limit distractions, but when it's an accessibility issue, this needs to be something that they are familiar with. I mean, a huge issue that I see currently, at least in, in my area, is, you know, students are able to use this assistive technology at the university level, but as soon as they get into the workforce, it's like, no way. 
Well, that's, that's a big thing. So I kind of pre-interview my future employers and I've gotten a lot of first new jobs. Um, that's kind of how you get a pay raise, right? Um, so the most recent, my, my current employer, when I met with him the first time, I said, I am a person with a disability and I disclosed automatically. And I said, I've been able to achieve all this stuff on my curriculum vitae because I have had this in place. It needs to be a part of what we embrace. So when I ask you to give me a calendar invite, it's because I wanna be respectful of your time and be there. And I'm probably not the best person to take notes for our team, <laughs> you know, cause I'm trying to process what you're speaking about. And so, you know, laying down the ways in which you work, it is a hard thing to do when you're entering a new team. Um, even in the university, if it's a new semester, starting over with a new set of faculty, it's always challenging. And so special education field. Yes. Oh, well, I can tell, Dr. Garforth, I told you I had that wonderful Kendall um, and I sat in um, research faculty meetings and, you know, Lisa Deeker embraces diversity in our field but not everyone does. And so listening to faculty talking about having to make their textbooks accessible and how it might impact the bottom line when publishers have to give texts in multiple formats to multiple students, you know, they very much believed in the K-12 access component of what we did. But higher ed very much back when these, like in 2010, 2011, when the states were going through nine-ish changes and all the accessibility law um, were updated, they struggled in higher ed to believe that us too, if we get one federal dollar, we also have to be fully accessible in our programming. That was a big um, paradigm shift, I would say, because folks were living in this space that it's a, a right to go to K-12, but a privilege to come to college. And they had to come to terms with this. Some faculty that had been there 30, 40 years, right? And famous faculty doing like reading research and like things that I'm like, hold up, you believe in this in K-12, so what's the dividing factor, right? Um, and I also think that like, as you go up into college, so, you know, an undergraduate degree may be more accessible because there's more individuals, but then when you get into the first graduate degree, your master's, maybe a little less. And then at, at the PhD level, even less, right? And then if you go back for any kind of higher certificate or, you know, specialized training, I always am defending my right to why I need these things. They'll go, but you had a 4.0 or you're, you're this or you're that or you've published. You, are, are you sure you need a I'm like, hold up. I'm telling no. you. I'm, I'm just doing this because I have a whole bunch of free time in my life <laughs> and I'm testing what you're going to say. Yeah, right. Um, which, you know, in university's defense, most of the students and, and young faculty that are working in those offices, if they have a limited lens of disability, they um, sometimes put their foot in their mouth unknowingly, like they, they haven't had enough training in that role in that, you know, um, student service center office. I sometimes am offended because somebody said to me, hold up, but you're not deaf. Like they were wondering why on my accommodations list, I had certain things listed. And, you know, again, bimodal processing, I know 
I process university lecture better when there's closed caption because the intonation of some people speaking, I don't pick up words. Um, I definitely know that I don't process in certain range. Um, nothing is wrong with my hearing, but I know that I don't process certain sounds that people say. So it's very helpful for me to have closed caption when I'm listening to someone teach me something. And so I was asked, like, are you sure you need this? You're not deaf. And I was like, whoa, hold up. I'm telling you I need this. <laughs> and so I think if people would just listen better um, and truly let the individual advocate for their use of accommodations, in a, in, they're reasonable. They're not unreasonable. Um, one of the tools that I wanted to share a little bit today, um, it, it's called the SEP framework. And so um, um, Joyce, is an amazing human being. So um, Joy, they call her Smiley, um, but she is a personal colleague and friend um, and she's passed since, but her research um, is amazing. And it helps people to kind of think of what the task that you have to do in which environment that you're doing it and what available tools are there to help you to you know, support the task. And it really is a holistic framework to think through and make decisions. Um, and a lot of teams, they, they are poorly trained in all the facets of assistive technology. So starting with something called the SET framework would be very beneficial. Um, if you actually just Google SET framework, there's actually an imposter um, website that Joy did not put out herself and it's all of her work, but you can find, um, I think Vanderbilt, I had spoken previously about the IRIS modules. I think there's an IRIS module with the SET framework and there's lots of research and tools um, that can help you to learn how to use the SEP framework. Again, here in Indiana, um, the Patents Project, they do training with teams um, completely free of charge to help them to learn how to use this framework. Um, but in the university course that I taught, I taught a, an assistive technology course, we walk through different case studies of different persons and their needs and use this thinking toolkit to really design specially designed instruction and what services would be included in the IEP. So it's a really nice way to think about assistive tech. Um, here in stateside, we have to annually at the IEP talk about assistive technology. And I have a personal company that does assistive technology evaluations, um, but I try to share with teams that you could trial any sort of technology and begin to train students if you believe it's reducing barrier. You don't always have to do a full-blown assistive technology evaluation um, as the student's needs are more complex and more um, um, challenging. You would definitely want to do a, a full-blown evaluation, but any team can explore technologies and write those technologies into the IEP a lot of folks don't do it because they're they're bound by fear. They feel like, well, how much is it going to cost? Or what challenges if I put this in a legal plan and we don't do it? You can write it in a way that the team will explore the use of. If you're telling me a student is very challenged with organization, let's say, if organization came up all in the present levels of being a huge need for the student or executive functioning, then you should set up a goal. And let's say that goal is around writing. Well, in that specially designed instruction, you know, you would decide 
what tools, what things, what electronic graphic organizers, for instance, you know, back in the day, we use Webspiration a lot. There's yeah. tons, Lucid Chart is another one that I love. There's tons of visual graphic organizer um, extensions and apps. So what are we using to help that student to become more independent, to write in a clear way? And can we do things on Google Keep, I had mentioned, and I'll send you that link, but it's, you can design a checklist, you know, to go back and, you know, how do you do paragraph shrinking with checking for grammar? And you could put those metacognitive checkpoints and have a student at the independent level learn how to use this. And if you're teaching that one student, you can use that class-wide and, and share that on the projector and use that as your checklist for all kids. But it's really designed especially for that one kid that really needed it, but it can help everyone. So that's the beauty about assistive technology. When we're understanding as a neurotypical how we want our class and how we want certain assignments or how we would like certain routines, if we layer a tool to support somebody that's neurodivergent, that tool is really going to help everybody to stay more focused, more clear, be able to keep um, like almost a, a log of did we do these things. Um, there's something in flight called a pre-flight checklist. Every pilot, whether they are brilliant or you know less brilliant, they go through this same exact checklist every single time. They walk their aircraft, they check the controls, they check the this, they check, they go through a standardized procedure to normalize their practice. In hospitals, they do the same thing for hand washing. So if we do these things in our classrooms around writing a paragraph, it may help a student with an impairment but it's gonna help all students to have that automaticity that we want them to have when they go to write a paragraph. And especially because we care about statewide testing, right? When they go to write on the statewide test, they'll have these things really easily, readily available if they're practicing to that automaticity. So I challenge teachers to think more strategically through their lessons and their curricula and think where would you want to build in the supports for kiddos that are diverse in these ways. Um, universal design for learning gets to the heart of that. So, you know, when we put our lessons through these like checkpoints and we have pre-built these things, it does not feel like a burden any longer. And so usually when we get a kiddo with an IEP, we're like overwhelmed and not sure how to help or what do you mean I have to provide notes? Well, technology can help us to crowdsource those notes. You can put kids in pods every nine weeks and have four kids at a time, one that's neuro, very typical and advanced, right? One that's maybe neurodivergent and put them in teams for kiddos and share a Google Doc and have them write and construct and enhance their notes and then present why they, they chose to write the notes and have four teams out of four teams. You know, like you can have them share throughout their class, their notes. So if it's a brand new prep that you've never taught before, yes, that's a burden to provide notes in every single section if you have three, four, five preps, right? So you could put the burden on the kiddos together, but expect different things from different kids at different times. So I'm gonna sit and listen and watch you work while you're giving me a 15 minute lecture and I'm not writing a thing, but I might go back and enhance those notes after. I might reorganize them and bold keywords and put maybe a mini video in for a certain concept. And I might be the enhancer 
Whereas a kiddo that can process and type at the same time, you know, and it's not going to stop them from accessing what you're saying, they might put the raw, the raw words in while you're speaking. And so when you team up the kids like that, you'll have far more learning and they'll defend why they chose to, to represent their notes in a certain way. Maybe make a mnemonic for a certain chunk of your, your things and make it student-led because just giving me a mnemonic, even something as simple as the set framework, and I've taught it a million times, I have to go back and I don't know what the, what the letters mean. I know it's like setting uh, or student environment uh, tool, I don't know, I can't tell you, but I have taught it a bazillion times. So it doesn't mean anything in my brain unless I create it. So our kids are the same way. Um, but so when we do things like that, we're not only allowing access to increase, we're also increasing community and we're seeing value in each other's differences. And so I think that part is missing from the culture of assistive technology. The, the why behind I might need this and quite frankly, in a universally designed classroom, and we should be allowing more than just that one kid with an IEP or a 504 plan to use a tool. It might increase productivity for all kids. And we might have some students in the environment that may need these supports as well, but they didn't have a strong advocate to get them evaluated and identified because we know there's far more kiddos in our environments with impairments that they learn about when they're an adult. And if we just create a different culture and we have tools and most schools have tools, it's the allowing the tools to do the support and the scaffolds I have teachers constantly that say, well, if we allow this, then they go to take the test. So my husband's famous for something called the rule of 175. If you allow kids for 175 days to ear read, and if they don't have an accommodation to ear read for the day of the test, they have more access to on-grade level materials and maybe motivation to read in general they're going to increase their brain's capacity to take in multiple texts if they're engaged with any kind of reading. So if we strip that away on the day of the test, 175 of those other days of them being grossly engaged with any mechanism to access print and to do it at a high level on grade level or beyond grade level, rather than giving kids all reading time at isolated independent level, which may be two and three and four you know, years beneath where they are, we're going to increase everybody's capacity. And I don't think people think of it that way. So the more engagement I have, and the more you're putting print in front of me, like for instance, if every teacher from listening to this podcast, if they decided tomorrow to just put web captioner on and every classroom they have for the rest of the school year, they have the captions on, you're gonna have kids that track those captions and read at a higher capacity simply because they're seeing more print in their environment and they're picking up and they're becoming more fluent. And some of those words are becoming sight words because they're surrounded by your language all the time. If the teacher's vocabulary is very advanced, they're getting to see multisyllabic words in print at a high level. And one of the highest predictors of kids' language is how much academic language the teacher is using. So if the teacher is using this spoken and you have the captions on, they're now seeing those words in print. What a beautiful thing for all kids. Of course. And one thing I wanted to mention is a lot of neurodivergent individuals struggle with some sort of executive functioning. And some of the assistive technology and strategies that you'll be using for that student 
is to support their deficits or their, their um, struggles with executive functioning. Now, all students, every student in the classroom is going to benefit from the scaffolding of executive functions, especially because during the school years and the high school years, we're seeing the most rapid growth of executive functions, and they only develop if the environment is set up for them. So <laughs> we're giving all of these students the opportunity to develop these skills that they aren't necessarily going to develop by chance anywhere else. Then we're doing better for everyone. Absolutely. So one of the things I did as a teacher is every single day on the whiteboard, because everybody says, oh, we don't put anything on the board anymore because we project everything. It's all in our Google classroom or it's all in. So every single day as a high school biology teacher, I put the date because a lot of our kids struggle with time. What day is it? They don't know. So I would put Monday, the date. And so they would always see it every day. Every day, the date started on my board. So I have the date. Then I had my I can statement, like I can identify macro molecules, right, by uh, visual inspection, let's say. So they would have to look at different macro molecules and say, yep, that's a protein, that's a fat, just by the molecular structure. Mm -hmm. So then I might say number one is my bell ringer on visually inspecting a macro molecule. <laughs> then number two might be a 10 minute mini lecture where I'm going to help them fill out a graphic organizer on, you know, four different macromolecules. Then we're going to do a hands-on activity, but I would have the list on the board and I would even put the time frame. And I'd say to folks in the classroom, like when we get to number three, I need you to be the timekeeper because I need you to set that 10 minute timer because I don't want to go over. And if I go over, just hit pause and we'll finish it tomorrow. So I was really teaching them how to plan around time because mm -hmm. in their own independent study lives, they need to know, like, I should only give this 10 minutes. I should only give that. But then when I would get to maybe a homework or study time, I'd say, okay, guys, tonight, put a five minute timer on. You're going to look at the graphic organizer and you're going to try to identify one, you know, molecular unit. Like, is it carbon? Is it, you know, whatever it is in each of these things or find the similarities and the differences across the four macromolecules we talked about today and just make a little T-chart on similar things and differences. So if they did that through a timer, they are now helping their executive functioning, but all kids need that. All kids need study skills. All kids need to be coached in that. Some of our kids that are really, really challenged in those areas, they're gonna need it a little bit more. So even though I said that verbally, I might have a handout by the door that says, tonight, T-chart, similar differences, five minutes. And I, I might make that available, but for that one kid, force them to take it and say, oh, and by the way, you're going to lose this piece of paper. So take a picture of it. I'm going to text your mom right now, a picture of it as well, because their skills are so hampered that they would not get out of my door. Even if it was a seventh period class and they were going straight to the bus, they're going to lose that paper from my door frame to their door at their house and then not know what to do and not remember it. So teaching them to make those those timer reminders at 515, put a timer reminder to look at the picture in your phone. I mean, it needs to be that explicit for some kids, whereas some kids will just automatically remember to try to make a T-chart. And, you know, one of the things that I always try and get for the this individuals that I advocate for is being able to take a picture of homework assignments 
because the goal of the homework assignment isn't to see how well a student writes it down. <laughs> feel every student in the class should be allowed to take their phone out, take a picture of the homework on the board. Yes. And um, the notes to rewrite. Like if you're going to yeah. just sit and pay attention to me diagram something in a science class and you want to give all of your faculties to that and focus, great. At the end, I'm going to move aside. You can take a picture. And if I want you to write it to try to, you know, encode it into your memory, you can mm -hmm. do that tonight in your notebook if you want. You know, so I do think that's a really good strategy to allow students the, the mode of engagement that they need. For sure. Now, in the last few minutes, I want you, and I'm only, I'm going to limit you to seven <laughs> of your favorite tools for assistive technology. Now, just because it's on the list doesn't mean it's right for all students. Assistive technology has to be correct for the student. For example, I tried the, you know, I've, I've done good effort of doing ear reading and I, I can do it. I enjoy doing it for pleasure texts, but when it comes to academic texts and, you know, journal articles or something that I really want to comprehend, my comprehension level just isn't the same as if I physically painstakingly go through and read it. And that's, that's okay. Uh, and, and it's understanding. And the same thing, I need to take notes by hand because if I'm typing, I can do it really quickly, but it doesn't have the same level of understanding. It's funny. So I, I talk about that quite a bit. So I ear read everything. What I do differently, and I've been looking for um, research on this because it, it's there's not a lot. Um, but so whether a computer voice or a human voice, there is something called the UPAR that would allow us in that K-12 space to have a student read something with their eyes, read something with their ears, either in a human voice or a computerized voice, and we get a score of where their comprehension is. And then we can make an informed decision based on research using that tool. And that tool is a really valid tool. Um, and so sometimes when you see kiddos, they, they could eye read and comprehend maybe two grade levels below where they're, they're living. So they'll give you a little chart. So let's say it's a fifth grader, but they, when they eye read, they comprehend at a third grade level. When we give them a computerized reader, they might be in fifth grade comprehending at a seventh grade level. And then when we give them a human reader, maybe they're in fifth grade and they, they comprehend that human voice at a fifth grade level. So what you speak about is important for academic processing, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, I cannot use a human reader. It's distraction, at like hearing the intonation in their voice, hearing kind of their ums and pauses. Um, so I don't prefer a human theatrical read text at all. Um, so I prefer that choppy, lifeless text and I can speed it way up. Like I usually go two times the typical rate of whatever most people would listen. And so it sounds like a different language. Um, so that's for me for academic reading. If I'm reading a novel, which I will do seldomly, I, I like Mitch Album. I think I'm saying his name right. Um, so, you know, the five people you meet in heaven and he has one about Chica, which is a disability kind of book. But so he is a miraculous writer, but he also is an interesting narrator. I read The Knowledge Gap by Natalie Wexler, lots of different formats. Natalie has an audio where she's the reader and she's fun to listen to. And I kind of am like, oh, Natalie's my friend and I'm listening to my friend read to me, right? But 
But for me, when I'm trying to get meaning out of it, I want that choppy digital text at a fast rate or mm-hmm. else I get distracted and I wander off in my mind. So the individual needs to be really in the driving seat and they have to become fluent over time. Um, but so you had said, I prefer eye reading. Well, great. So if your eye reading is labored and we know that you're in many academic classes in a semester and we're not adding to the days in the semester, 45 days in a semester and your grades are due, then that idea of getting your reading beforehand during breaks, during summer, maybe alternative schedules for the things that are very labor intensive with reading needs to be an accommodation for you. Um, In high school, I took all my English classes in the summer. Same thing at my undergrad at Rutgers. I took all of the English classes that were very laden with reading by themselves. I didn't take any other classes with those. So knowing that we have to work with the individual. In terms of technology, you gave me such a hard question. So I love all technologies. So I would say number one technology is ear reading in general, but there are so many tools. So I had talked about um, NVDA. I still use that. And a lot of people are like, that's so old and out there. There was something um, on the Chrome extension called Chrome Vox I was in love with, and it's morphed and changed a lot. So then I had to go to something new. Um, But I've been really impressed lately with the Microsoft product, um, Immersive Reader. Um, And I'm a big, big fan of Read, Write, Think, I believe is the read and write. They dropped the think, I think, but read, write. Um, And with screen reading on a computer, what I typically do is use multiple apps. So um, I mentioned I get distracted. So I do, I do not have um, diagnosed ADHD, but we know within the dyslexic mind, it's comorbid. Um, and so I need all of that, the ads and extra frills off the page. And I need my page very sterile when I computer read. I cannot even have the questions or another scroller bar on my screen. So I use something called Rocket Reader, I believe. They change it in readability. They, you can clean up your screen And so it's very sterile and then you can use your screen reader. So I prefer a very clean screen. Now, if you looked at my desktop right now, I have icons all over the place or like when I open a browser, I have a thousand pins. So I'll open a new browser and take away all my noise and all the extra pins when I want to read and focus. So a very clean screen is important to me. Um, I said immersive reader already. Um, what else? So I, I love, love, love reading on my phone. And so I typically will have, um, I, I do have multiple things. So Apple books for me with a built-in accessibility tools on my phone, where I can double tap and scroll up, it will read really fast. And I love the rate of reading. So mm-hmm. when I download like a free Apple book, or sometimes I'll buy like low cost, like um, I want to say reading in the brain was five bucks on Apple. And I built, use my built-in reader. And so that has been awesome to listen to that book that way. Um, And then, of course, I have a Kindle. So I like to read on the Kindle and I prefer the intonation and kind of the digital reader on there. And I have a lot over 10 years of experience using that reader. Um, And it's changed a little bit over time. They changed for a little bit where they changed the metric on how fast. And that threw me through a loop a little bit. Um, The tortoise and the hare on Apple is pretty interesting because at the highest rate, Um, I've trained my brain over time to be able to read at that highest rate, which sounds like gobbledygook to most people. My son, the other evening, he's here for a visit for Thanksgiving. And he was like, what was that? And I said, oh, that was my screen reader. So it's kind of funny. Um, 
let's see, what else am I? Oh, Grammarly. So I am a huge um, fan. I love Grammarly. Um, I have the free version. So some people, you know, think that I have all this money that I'm spending tons of money into technology, but I'm using the free version. The same thing, I use the free version of um, use immersive reader in the Chrome extensions. And I think it does exactly what I need it to do. On my phone, I have an app called Seeing IA. You can scan any flat picture, like a you could scan a piece of um, a, a menu. You can scan a poster on the wall. You can scan anything and it will tell you. The other really cool thing it does, if you have someone that doesn't really connect with emotion or facial expressions, you can take a picture in your environment of someone and it will close caption it, it will say, or alt caption it, it will say, um, picture of a 35 year old lady looking happy. So like if you are working with neurodivergent individuals that aren't sure about facial expressions, I've trained them, like take a picture of the scene and take a look at it later. And you'll know like, were they happy, were they sad? Because <laughs> I have some adult individuals that are not very good at that or young adults, I should say. Um, but it allows you to scan money as well. So if you're working with individuals that are not good with perceiving um, paper money, it will scan money and tell you the, the amount that you have, which is really quite nice. Um, so it is seeing IA and that is amazing. Um, let's see, what else do I like? I like, um, for my own personal use, I like, believe it or not, and I think I talked about this before, achieving the core will allow you to put a piece of text in their analyzer and pull out the keyword vocabulary words. Uh, I am a person with a language impairment, so I like to pre-read and know the, the hardest to reach vocabulary in a text. And so those vocabulary supports for me are really good. Um, I've been doing sections of text. Um, I think they have a limit on how much you can use it. Like you might have to like take a pause and then do some in a couple of days. Um, Cause I've done like a whole bunch of stuff at once. And then they tell you like, oh, gotta hang out or up, up charge. I never buy anything um, in terms of like the upgrades. I use all free technology as much as humanly possible um, because I do know the barriers in between, you know, persons with the ability to add, like I'm using the, the free version of Grammarly. Um, what else? So I don't know how many I'm up to, but. <laughs> You're up to number five. Okay. Um, Okay, so I do like note keeping apps. So I had mentioned Google Keep. I do struggle with remembering um, and I'm, you know, typically in the middle of a lot of things. So um, between my volunteer work and my real work and my life. So I use Google Keep quite a bit and it allows you to um, save a lot of things and then you can integrate them with tasks. So like if you're on Gmail and you're using Google Keep, you can assign yourself things in your calendar and like make tasks. And there's really good YouTube support too. If you go like learning to use Google Keep, there's tons of brilliant people that model. Um, so they'll help you to use all those, but I definitely use that piece. Um, let's see, another organizational tool that I use um, I use a lot of them actually. So, but I want to make ones that are like, um, I, I'm using this one that reminds me to do daily tasks and you can set up like even something as silly as remembering to drink water and you go in and you rank and rate. And I can't think of the name of it. My phone's like over there, but I'll send it to you. Um, because it's also like a behaviorist app that you can retrain yourself to do a habit that you prefer to do. Um, and then, 
you're going to laugh at this. So I am anxious most of the time because of my dyslexia and being anxious creates more mistakes and being anxious makes like not a healthy, happy person. And I don't want to drink a bottle of wine every single night. So um, I use an app that allows me to cut lawns. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's like a mind like it, it will allow me to finger trace and relax and take a pause. And I wear a bracelet that says pause so that I can slow my brain down. Um, allowing people to take planned breaks and kids in classrooms, it's really important. And we talk about mindfulness, but not like mindfulness in a way I'm giving you another chore. Like truly have a break that they self-select something that works for them is important. And so I do, I take like a two to three minute break and it's fun because it's like gamified. I never buy anything extra, but I, I think it's called a long cutting. I don't know, I, but I'll send you the app. It's really cool. So you collect little new gadgets and you open treasure boxes, but I cut lawns just as a little break. I know that sounds ridiculous, but assistant you can come to my backyard anytime you want. First, <laughs> well, they, it's an app. <laughs> yeah, they say that, um, that ironing, for yeah. people with a lot of stress in their brain and anxiety, ironing because of the sensory part and the heat helps. But they do say lawn cutting um, and working in the garden because you're getting extra oxygen and you know you're in nature. So, um, but that helps me here in the winter. We've already had a first snow, so um, I, I'm not cutting too many for real lawns. So I've cut those fake lawns. Let's see. Um, am I up to six? I have one more. Yeah. All right. So uh, my one more would just be my phone. I, I mean, my phone and my digital earbuds. So um, my phone has so much in it. Uh, I am a Google girl. I love Google. I recommend to everybody to become Google certified, like the Google, Google for educators certified. You will learn how to link things and create things and really in time to connect all those tools. And Google has done an excellent job on creating more access. So you know, obviously we can use dictation inside of Google tools. Um, I work on my phone tons because I'm constantly moving building to building. And so I'll open up a Google, um, uh, just a Google doc and I'll write voice notes from a meeting that I was just in to remember to do some things. Then, you know, of course, cause I already mentioned Google keep. Yeah, I'll then give myself like a couple of tasks with due dates and it will even help me to integrate into calendar. So I do think, just that mobile device, having that, um, even remembering this, like, so I thought of a few things and I was like, oh, I want to share this and I want to share that. Well, so I sent myself links and put things together. And um, when I had to cancel on you, cause I wasn't feeling well and I sounded like a frog. Um, I was like, I am not gonna, you know, inundate you with all these things sounding that way. But I had had like that list and it was easy for me to go through that list preparing for this morning. So I, I don't know, I think in terms of the flexibility of the tool, it, can I have it on multiple devices? That's a big question. Like, will it be readily available on my work desktop and my laptop at home and my phone in my pocket at all times? And I have an hour to and from work. So I listen to lots of podcasts and I want to be able to quickly jot a few ideas of my own to look up a piece of research or a certain researcher or, you know, maybe a paper folks were talking about. Um, I tend to like really covet my phone big time. <laughs> um, I wasn't worried that Twitter was going to shut down. We'll have something to replace that app with. If it does, everybody's like, oh no, what if Twitter shuts down? How will I find you all? 
I'm like, people, you'll find each other. There's LinkedIn, there's something else. <laughs> but, but no, in all seriousness, though, I have been really um, like glued to an app. Like I lived in Washington, D.C. for a summer and I was using a lot of voice notes, almost like a podcast where I could put this information and log information. And I was doing it while I walked home in the evening and um, that app shut down. And so whenever you're thinking dynamically, always keep a backup of if they're treasures of yours, either export the transcript or keep a copy of your transcript someplace else. So um, even though we love all this technology, I have, of course, a terabyte of storage where I export my things constantly. And I have a backup of those things on some, something else. And of course, we have the cloud, but I also, you know, if anything ever crashes in our clouds that we have a backup to the cloud. So that's, that's me, multiple platforms. So I'm a Dropbox girl and a Google Keep and all that, or Google in general, but I have copies of multiple things. Hopefully I answered that question. Um, yes. That was a hard question, by the way. So I do have um, a whole big list of apps that I typically will take to team. So I'll try to find that and share it with you. Um, I didn't curate it, so I'll just be transparent. It's another beautiful, wonderful soul who shared with me a, a really good list of accessibility apps. And I think also patents, they'll loan apps and they have a list of apps and they get feedback from folks about their use. So I think, you know, this work can't be done in isolation. It has to be done through partnerships and through our continued conversations and um, I don't use Speechify and, and you mentioned that all the time. I hear you say that all the time. So I put that down as a list of things like for my winter break, I'm going to check it out because it's just not been in my wheelhouse, but I like to learn new things. So Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Well, thank you, Dr. Garforth. Again, I can't thank you enough for everything that you do for, you know, leading in this work and also pushing the envelope for people to think differently about us that are neurodivergent. So thank you. You're welcome.